I'm your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner Khan, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Welcome to another edition of Tehila Talks. And today we say hello to Julian and Alexis and welcome Jonah for the first time for our conversation. I was struck by the fact that we just finished Passover. And uh, what do we do at Passover? We have a Seder. We tell the story. And then it's quickly followed by Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day. And every year, we read the Torah again from beginning to end. And it seemed to me that embedded in our tradition is this practice of telling the story. So I wanted to ask, why Why does telling the story matter in a general way? Right? Why does, why does it matter? What, how does that resonate with you, Alexis? I mean, I guess... For me, it resonates because it's an opportunity to not only remember the story, but also think about it in a different way and maybe take something else out of it, maybe learn something new from the way you're hearing it or the way you're telling it. So what you're saying is it's not fixed. Yeah, it's definitely not fixed. Julian. Uh, I guess you mentioning that just made me think back to being a kid and experiencing Passover as from a kid's perspective and how useful like the props really were, I guess, towards like drawing me into it and sort of like motivating me to learn the sort of explanation behind the holiday. I think there's some holidays where like I didn't do that as much as I did with Passover. Jonah, why does telling the story matter, particularly Passover? Why and how does that resonate with you? Do you mean like retelling it every year? Yeah, retelling it every year. So people get like, reminded of the of the story and it resonates with me because it's like it feels like it brings you closer to Judaism I guess so on the same token we gather for Yom HaShoah and uh, this Friday night we had a speaker who read a story that he had written he's uh, his parents were survivors and he spoke about his ambivalence about t- telling the story. On one hand, why do we have to keep talking about the Holocaust? On the other hand, we have to keep talking about the Holocaust. And that's another kind of storytelling. And it's one of those things that we have in our tradition of uh, we're told to blot out the name of a Amalek and to remember a Amalek, right? We're always being given these contradictory instructions. So, why is it important to tell that story of the of the Holocaust of the Shoah? Wait, Rabbi, was that my Torah portion? Like remembering Malik but forgetting him? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. We asked another question, Rabbi. I when I I was thinking how we might discuss the Holocaust today. Have you been to any of the camps and and those sites in Europe? And if you have, like, what was your experience like? I've never been to a concentration camp. But I went to the cemetery where my my grandparents were buried. I mean, my great grandparents were buried. My grandparents died here. But yeah, I've avoided it. But I've been to the Holocaust Museum. Why? 
do you, you really like have avoided it and why? You know? uh, it's just the opportunity didn't avail itself. I've been to to Germany a lot of times, but never made that extra trip. Our son went to Auschwitz. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it depends as a generational question too. As I was thinking about it um, over the course of this week, I was thinking it might be something I would want to do. I mean, but yeah, just to get back to your question, I kind of wanted to ask what we got into. There was an exhibit and I I'm not sure if it was at the Jewish Museum in New York or at the New York or the city of the Museum of New York going back like 20 years about the journey of a of a boy named Daniel and they had a they had a cattle car and it was it really was a progression of his life and now it's at the Holocaust Museum in Washington and for me that was yeah I went to the museum in Washington uh recently as part of a school like program and it was really seeing the beds those wooden beds that they had and the bunk bed and the cattle car that really like kind of brought it home to me in a way that I hadn't really experienced it. And like the brutality of it, I think became really apparent to me for some reason, just with those objects. So like, so we're talking about storytelling. It's interesting how sometimes you need to see the something from the place to really experience it. Alexis. Yeah. I mean, when, I guess talking specifically about the Holocaust and the way we tell this story for me, especially in recent years, as I've been thinking about the way it's discussed at my school in particular, is kind of come to me about a different way of teaching rather than just listening, like listening to the stories, but then kind of taking time to reflect, which I think is often something that doesn't happen. And like Julian said, finding something that kind of, makes it hit. Like for Julian, it was visiting the Holocaust Museum and seeing those objects. For me, I kind of, I haven't quite found it yet, but I'm definitely searching for it. Ona, have you grappled with this at all? Uh, not really. Not really. Uh, I don't really, I, I don't think I like know enough to say anything about it. Okay. I will say that the first time I went to Germany, I was about maybe a little younger than Jonah. And uh, I speak German. And so uh, it hit me there because I looked at all the men of a certain age and I wondered what they had been doing during World War II. And then having, and then hearing them say when I was sitting with my parents and them saying in German, do you think those are Jews over there? And of course, we all understood what they were saying. Uh, what was this rabbi? This was in Berlin. What year was your first visit? Oh, gosh. 67 or 68, something like that. Well, that was before the whole kind of, you know, they fully sort of renounced that part of the past, you know? What do you mean? Oh, no, they were. They were They were doing, to give you a sense of how complicated it was, I met teenagers there at that, that visit who were distant relatives. And um, they took me. This young woman took me to a bar, which my parents didn't know about at the time. I was like 12 years old, right? We go to this bar. Uh, but I met all these young people who were in college and a lot of them were wearing stars of David. And I was like, so what's going on? And this was a way to uh, rebel against their parents who had been at the very least bystanders to Hitler, but also possibly in Hitler Youth or had, do you know what I'm saying? So there was this whole, so it was bubbling up then already. And Germany is very different from Austria, but that's a whole other conversation. 
but telling the story. So you, I'm going to go back to your whole thing about objects. Why do you think objects make a difference? I mean, I want to, I want to answer that question. Then I have like another kind of thought, but I think it, for me, at least the Holocaust does feel very abstract to me and not something that's like imminently close to me or that I can kind of conjure to mind. Um, and that's part of why I'm interested in like going to Europe and maybe visiting one of the locations. But I think the objects, there was just something so, so sad about that bed and like how big it was, but also like the description of the bodies being like kind of people perishing on those beds. It was just so horrifying in a way that I think like a book or like a visual description or um, an audio description, like couldn't capture for me. But I also want to say one of my first experiences, like kind of reckoning with the Holocaust was I was at summer camp and I found this book that just said Treblinka on it. And I read the book and it was like the story of the Jews in the Treblinka death camp who had like rebelled and fought back. And I really seized on this sort of narrative of like the Jews who did fight back. And that to me was like kind of the thing that I, I, that really resonated with me. So I also wanted to put that out there that like, I kind of like randomly picked up this book and it's sort of, that was my real first experience, like on my own reckoning with it. I think it's, um, it's complicated in the same way that hearing the story of Passover is complicated because the story of Passover is also traumatic. Let's just be honest. It's a traumatic story going from slavery to being free, but that slavery piece you know, how do we reenact that? Do we reenact that? Uh, you know, having salt water, okay. Having horseradish, okay. But we're trying. Not like the real thing, yeah. Right. What we, what we're, but we're, what are we trying to do, right, Alexis? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about the Passover story and a Passover seder is that it's very interactive. Like it requires that you listen, but it requires that you listen not because somebody's speaking at you, but because it requires you ask the questions that you eat the different foods at the specific times that you drink wine or if you're a kid, grape juice. And I I think that's, to me, the most important part of the Passover Seder is that we are trying to recreate these different aspects of, of being enslaved in Egypt. And the way we're doing that is we're asking people to not just listen to the stories, but also participate in the story, in a, a way. Even to the point of of um, having empathy for our enemies, right? Even to the point of taking the the wine and dropping it for each of the plagues. So Jonah, what? how does your family do that commemoration of, uh, of the plagues? Do they, are they dramatic with the way, with the way they do the wine, the wine and the, you know, do you have a special spoon? How do you, how do you all do it? I don't think we have a specific way of doing it. The other question, I actually wanted to answer that about- Go ahead. Uh, about, never mind, sorry. Jonah, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. From your perspective, what's one of the more interesting parts of like Passover? Or is it something that you do connect to the Holocaust? And like, because to me, part of what I think is kind of difficult about Passover is that we are not, like we are very- I personally feel very far from the experience of slavery. So like being like comparing the salt water to the real life experience to me is like kind of hard as an American. It's like, what do you think, Jonah? It was like, does it it conjure anything to mind? Like, do you find it? Yeah. Uh, I kind of agree. It like feels kind of far, 
Yeah. Feels foreign. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole thing is foreign, right? That whole Seder is a foreign kind of experience. It's bizarre. There's no other meal like that. It's not like a Thanksgiving dinner, right? It's not. So I'll, I'll just share with you when we do the, my father was very insistent that when uh, we came to the plagues, A, that the wine be red and that the drops go into the Haggadah. There was no like neat little plate to put it in. It was, So we have all these Haggadot that are stained red when you come to the plague page. And so it's like you're opening a page of dried blood, right? It's like, it's, it's pretty visceral, actually. I think of you, Jonah, because you're a visual person, right? It, it, it's uh, the visual impact is there even as we recreate it every year. It's, it's sort of an amazing thing. And the power of story, are there stories in your lives or in your family's life that, that you know and that you own? Do you know what I'm saying? That, that just like, this is, this is part of the ECAR. This is part of the central identity of my family. This is uniquely my family. Even that mo, it's part of a larger picture. Go ahead, Jonah. Julian. Julian. I'll I'll say something and then let Jonah. But I think, yes, there's definitely like family stories that are almost kind of like the Exodus story for me, where it's like it helps me sort of explain like how my family got to this country, et cetera. But there's also a, a level of like, I guess every family story has an element of legend in it, right? Like you know, did granddad really cut down 40 trees? Like, did he actually have $2 when he came in like to this country? Like, so there is sort of this element of like willing kind of exaggeration, I guess, in those stories that I find kind of interesting, but yeah. Yeah. Jonah, any family stories that y'all, y'all own? I, I don't think I know any of my family stories, but, but like, I have heard that like my, my relatives tend to like, like make up not not really makeup like i i think my family has like very small information about what actually happened so they tend to like elaborate but like kind of like twist it a bit so yeah it's what we call embroidery they embroider the story alexis i mean yeah i definitely have family stories i actually i had a project recently for school where we were learning about immigration, particularly Jewish immigration at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century. And so my assignment was to interview an immigrant in my family and I interviewed my mom. And so as I was doing this, I kind of found that there was a lot of parts of the story that I knew, a lot of parts of the story that, you know, I'd heard that had been exaggerated, but there were also parts that, you know, were kind of brand new, which I thought was interesting because like, me being the daughter of immigrants is important to the way I experience being Jewish and the way I, I experience living, living period. So I thought it was interesting that I, you know, there were a lot of new things that I heard in there just by, you know, knowing the story so well. I think, I think that's true. I, I think what's also interesting though. So you ask your mother, not your grandmother. That's also my daughter, our daughter interviewed uh, her grandmother and learned things that I never knew parts of her story I had never heard before. And it's, it's these stories, they inform who we are. Part, I, I mentioned earlier, I was interviewed uh, by, the, by some students this morning and they asked me about anti-Semitism. And I said that because each of us has our own set of experiences, the way in which we respond to anti-Semitism is informed by our own story. And I do you would would you argue with me on that or would you say that that's on the right track? 
Julian, what do you think? I mean, one of the things that this has made me think about um, is like there's been this new story, like the after the Second World War, like the U.S., Britain, Australia, Canada, like they had an asylum system put into place partially because the of the like tragedy of turning away Jews who are fleeing the Holocaust. But like, for example, the United Kingdom, like there's essentially now no way to file for asylum and to utilize that process. And, you know, even in thinking about something like that, I do go back to like being Jewish because, you know, like I just mentioned, part of why they created this asylum system is is what happened in the in the 40s with the Holocaust. So there is like kind of that really does inform how I see a lot of things and like what my responsibility is. But in, in terms of anti-Semitism, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things, especially because so many Jews like appear white or not all of us, but many like appear white. And we do kind of have many privileges like other sectors of society might not. It's it does get very complicated in terms of like how we react, because it, it is very frightening when you experience. But there's some there's so much of the time where you're able to escape it. It's it's um, interesting you say that about asylum, though. My mom was born in Germany. My grandparent, my grandfather was born in what was then Poland. They're all, it was time to leave China after the war and come to America. My mother came to America. My grandparents were sent back to Germany to a DP camp because they were Polish quota. So it depended on where you were from, where, whether you got to come in or not. So so that's part of my story, right? That's, and I'll tell it that way. I'll I'll say it with a little bit of, I don't want to say cynicism about the United States, but just a sense of it wasn't like, oh, you people have been oppressed. We're going to open our doors to you. No, let's figure, let's, let's put you all into different boxes, right? So the other part of this, of telling stories, when we read the Torah every year, we read the same exact thing every year. And I've asked this question multiple times as a teacher, but I see you, you know, you're you're not in my classroom anymore. So I, I ask it a little differently is coming back to a text, coming back to a story. As you get older, do you experience that story differently? And does it take on new shades, new colors, new resonances? Because otherwise, I mean, I guess I would say, why bother, right? If if we can't interact differently with it, Alexis. Yeah, I mean, every time you read read a book, you're reading it a little bit differently because you read other books. So now, I guess the context under which you're reading the book is different. But I think in part, like what, especially when we're reading the Torah every year, we're reading it under a different context. We're reading it, you know, having come from a different place. I mean, I'm definitely not, if I'm going to services, I'm not, you know, it's not the same every week and it's not the same every year. You know, the way I feel about things changes, um, especially now because I'm in high school, but, you know, everything that I do kind of informs the way I come into somewhere. Maybe I had a bad day before the first time I read, you know, a specific part of the Torah. And then, you know, a year later I'm back, I'm in, I'm reading the same part of the Torah again, except this time, maybe I got a good night's sleep. So I'm able to process it in a different way or understand it differently. Julian? No, that's a, I think Alexis made a really interesting point that like each year we are different people when we're coming back to read it. And that's, that is kind of a beautiful thing that for thousands of years, like 
Jews have returned to the Torah each and every year, even all the changes that we've experienced in the world. Like it couldn't be any more different than 3000 years ago. So yeah, I, I mean, I do think I'm starting to experience the stories a little bit differently. And I think I had a big leap from being a kid in Hebrew school to then being a teenager in our community and sort of like, I started to see the value of the stories a lot more and get away from like the, how many times do I have to like drop something? You know, it, you start to see the rhyme and the reason behind the ritual and even being there this year, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see like people come together and spend the time to like learn the story again. So I, I just want to uh, put this frame on it this week. Uh, we celebrated earth day, right? This and so if we put the Earth Day lens on reading the creation story and read that we're told to be guardians of the earth with the lens of Earth Day, the question becomes, are we, are we being successful at our jobs? Are we being good guardians, right? So, I mean, we've had, we had one of these podcasts talking about the environment. I'm not going there specifically, but it the text has the capacity, these stories have the capacity to take different lenses. So I know Jonah's not saying a lot today, but when I I see you here, Jonah, I think of you as somebody who's a visual person. So I, I think of you as someone who has the capacity to put a visual on something in different ways at different times, right? You don't see things. I can put the same thing in front of you when you were little and some and put it in front of you now and I think you'd probably have a different visual response would you think that's an accurate statement yeah yeah and I, it's we're always responding differently and the question is then so he, okay so now we got all these stories we're hearing the story of passover uh we're dealing with people who are who are enslaved we're hearing the story of the shoah of the holocaust okay now we've done that and uh, we pack up our bags and say, now, well, now I've been there, done that, we're, I'm, I'm finished. What do we do with it once we've heard it is the next question, right? What do we do with it? How many, I mean, I, we were with our granddaughter last night, we we're reading her bedtime stories. And I would say most of them have a little, have a little lesson, which is sometimes annoying, but okay. But these are not bedtime stories. They're much harder. And so the question I'm asking is what, in what ways do telling these stories obligate us to do what, to be what? I don't think they, my personal like emotional reaction to that is like, I don't think they obligate us in one way or the other. I think we're still very much free agents. And, um, you know, I think I wanted to ask this, but we we may be running out of time. And That's okay. But my friend, he just read the Bible and he read some like Northrop Fry about the Bible. And he was saying that like Judaism was really like a law of a religion of laws is how he put it to me. And it was sort of like an insulated community. I've always seen it the opposite. And when he said that, that was very, I see us as like a religion of stories and very open, but he was sort of saying that was how it was in Eastern Europe is, I just thought that was interesting. Well, we, we're both. The guardrails are the, are the rules. The stories add the color. And basically, uh, it's all about living consciously. And so the rules are there to help us do that, right? So part of our Seder is the line of, um, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt or, and you were a stranger in the strange land. Your obligation, it's not said more eloquently, 
is to welcome the stranger in your midst. That to me is one of the obligations that for me comes out of the Seder. Yeah, I could definitely, I would stand by that obligation for sure. Alexis, any, do you see any obligations coming out of all of this? I mean, I, I don't know if they're obligations, but I guess the hope is, is that once you hear these stories, you kind of, you look at, you know, what happened and the hope is that you attempt to be better for the people that come after to, you know, let the stranger in because, because we were turned away. The hope is that, you know, you take these stories of pain in particular and, you know, find the causes of the pain and find the ways in which for other people you can try to avoid that pain. It's not an easy task put before us. Really, it really isn't. And I think that the stories are a way of sort of putting the platter in front of us and say, well, these bad things can happen. Now, what can we do to avoid them? And, and maybe they're not obligations, but and maybe, as Julian says, we're free agents to do as we wish. But there's definitely they're definitely pushing us in a particular direction. Well, to harken back to my point about the UK and their immigration policy, I think we have an obligation to wrestle. Like the solution isn't one extreme or another, but it's a real human, like it's a real wrestling with the facts. And you know what I mean? So that's that's where I do see the obligation. So, Jonah, do you have any closing thoughts for us as we leave this story piece today? Not not especially. No. Not especially. Okay. Alexis. As we come come to the end of, of this podcast story, and I do want to ask one more question. So, Jonah, you may be able to answer this question. Was storytelling important when you were little? People telling you stories? I mean, for me, absolutely. I mean, you know me. I read a lot, right? But, like, when I was younger, I was having this conversation with my mom. I would have the same whatever three books that I would rotate through and read it over and over and over again. The storytelling was definitely a big part of like who I was when I was little. And then as I kind of got older, I started, you know, asking for my family stories, my friends' stories. And I think, I think for me, it was kind of a way of, you know, learning more about the people around me, the world around me, and, you know, trying to figure out the ways in which not the right way to exist in the world, but, you know, try to find some way to exist. Jonah, storytelling when you were little? I, I think it's it's important because especially when you're little, it can like set e- examples, I guess, and like tell you what's right and wrong. It's like a, a really like storytelling in general is like a really simple way that's like more cut out other than like life, which is like more of like a grayish area. So it's like a simple, yeah. A simple way in. Yeah. Yeah. Julian? That's a great way to put it. And having known Jonah as a kid, I think Jonah is a storyteller himself. Like you can tell, like even his poetry and stuff, like you can tell he's kind of in his own head with his story. So, so it's clearly, you know, I think storytelling matters. Uh, obviously, uh, I think rabbis are supposed to be storytellers and not should, should tellers. There's a difference between, right? So it's not about shooting you guys. It's about here's a story. Now, here's the story. Now, I want you to figure out what you think about this story. Uh, what does it mean to you? And how do you respond to that? And what Julian said about going to visit one, you know, going to visit one of the camps, I think 
it's interesting because somebody just told me they went for the first time and it was just very upsetting, powerful, and connecting, right? All of those things. Uh, for me, going to the places that my mother grew up and that she had to leave had some of that similar effect. Alexis, I don't think you want to go to Russia, right? No. <laughs> it's, not, it's not part of your, uh, your plan. But it's seeing things, seeing objects, and, and not keeping it all in the head. It goes beyond the head. It's in the music. It's in, you know, the satyrs are a really prime example of really good storytelling. A good satyr, a good satyr is not one where you're glued to the book. A good satyr is one where from the food and the satyr plate and the conversation and the, uh, when you're little, you have props. When you're older, you have set frogs on the table, whatever you have that, that sets it up to start a conversation. And maybe there we'll, we'll take some action. Not always, but sometimes we can. So Alexis, one more closing thought from you. And then I go to Julian and we'll, we'll call it a, a deal. Yeah. I mean, with stories, I think like for me, it's always kind of been important to, you know, if you can't have something tangible to, you know, sit for a moment and reflect on what you just heard and what you learned and, you know, if you can have a conversation about it with somebody, I mean, I'm a person who, <laughs> you know, if I find something I really enjoyed reading or watching or listening to, I'll go and I'll talk about it for hours. And I think that's the the most important part of storytelling is the moment after where you're reflecting and you're taking it all in. Julian? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Just like stories are a way for us almost to explore our experiences and other people's experiences. And I think as I'm getting older, I'm appreciating that element of, of Judaism more and more. So. Well, we are going to be posting the story that we heard on Friday night on our website. And I invite you to listen as it deals with some aspects of storytelling and is good storytelling. And thank you all so, so very much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Tehillah Talks. For more information about Tehillah, go to congregationtehillah.org. Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.